today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The day after Election Day. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what a lot of hubbub about uh, nothing. Uh, of course, uh, Mayor Fred back in uh, the office uh, beating uh, Vito Scro, his closest competitor, 54% to about 38% of uh, the vote. As uh, hopefully now uh, we can all move on. Uh, how many times, you know, this is like playing a football game and the clock's run out, but we still haven't lost yet, so we want to keep playing. Doesn't matter if the clock says zero. Doesn't matter if the time's run out. We want to keep playing the game until we lose. We're just not happy with a win. Uh, it's hilarious. It, it, it's, it's, it, the, the project has already started. How much more can we do to try to kill it? This was supposed to be the referendum. You had a choice. We had a mayor who was uh, not only painted his vision for LRT, but also the rest of the city versus a candidate who literally ran on one issue, and that was killing the LRT. And and clearly, uh, 54% chose Mayor Fred Eisenberger over Vito Scro by 38%. So why can we not move? Just move on now. Just move on. Uh, hold that for later. First, we're going to play you some clips. Uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of changes, not as many as Burlington, uh, b- but certainly some changes. And uh, here's what before. And also, we're going to have uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger on coming up uh, next hour as soon as he can fit us in. Here's what Vito Scro had to say about uh, his campaign and uh, how how it all turned out. I'm a little disappointed at the results, obviously, but I feel good. I don't know if there's anything else we could have done on this campaign. We put a plane in the sky, <laughs> and we did a lot of the, I, I, I feel good that not done at the results, obviously, but uh, the campaign went well. You know, he does bring up a valid point. There's nothing else he could do. He made this a one-issue race, and he chose anti-LRT, and even with putting a plane in the sky, it didn't stop the train on the tracks. Uh, and an old face returning back to City Council in Ward 9, Brad Clark. From the council aspect, it, it, we need to collaborate. So there's a lot of respect around the table. We need to work together uh, to move things forward. And if that means compromise on some things, then, then so be it. All right, just getting off the roller coaster now is Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. How was the ride, Henry? Oh, it was up and down, <laughs> but a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. How do you look back at this and sum it all up? Well, I, I think we, you know, we basically, which often happens in elections, as we get closer to the end, it zeroes down for two main candidates for the most important job, and people have a choice of those two main candidates, and they size them up, and uh, they were interested. The voting turnout went up a bit, 4%, uh, which is good. It didn't quite hit 40, which I hope, but it did go up. I was pleased about that. And uh, they made a choice, and the majority said, you know, we like the we like the direction the city is going. We like the mayor, and uh, we give him a majority to do to do what he wants to do, and we know he wants to build the LRT, so let's get it done. Uh, did re- making this a one-issue election, did that hurt uh, the competition? Did that hurt Vito Scro? Well, it's hard to figure out how he would, how uh, you would have beaten the incumbent mayor. I mean, there was no scandals. Uh, his personal life is fine. Uh, you know, he uh, the policies, he had a broad range of policies, which generally met with approval of the population. 
uh, there was, of course, a vocal minority against the LRT, and it was about the only thing that uh, the main challenger could do. Um, the main challenger, uh, I think, had a, his big weakness. He had always been a background, backroom boy, and there's nothing wrong with that, but he never sat on council. So he didn't have the visibility uh, that uh, that a counselor would have. And I think uh, voters oftentimes want to see that. They want to see how somebody performs on council before they give him the head job. So, you know, he, he wanted to leap from the back rooms to the top job <coughs> without doing any of the doing any of the work on council or on the school boards uh, publicly. So uh, I, I think that was uh, that was the big problem that he faced. So where is the LRT issue now? Where does it leave this debate? We've had countless uh, votes and approvals and da-da-da, da-da-da. It's been approved on all levels of government. It's, it's a go. The, for all intents and purposes, uh, the project is started. They've already spent X number of million dollars. Mm-hmm. Where is it over now? Is this the last sort of... You know, I don't even know if it was a a real hurdle, but certainly one that was put before us. Is it over now? Well, what I think should happen at this point, and probably I guess it will be happening, uh, the mayor or some of his subordinates, but most likely the mayor, is going to call up uh, Johnny Akabuski, the minister of transport, said, listen, I ran on the LRT. I got a majority. Uh, let's get on with this. Uh, let's start going. The uh, The government had slowed it down. They wanted to see the outcome of the vote. Uh, they've got the vote, and uh, the government should basically say, okay, we're going to start spending money to keep the LRT uh, going. And uh, that's that's what I expect is going to happen. Um, prob- it should happen, and uh, and uh, the, the, that's, that's the next step, is essentially the green light from the Minister of Transportation. Can councillors still say to the province, we don't want it, we've got people who don't want it? I mean, I don't understand why we keep going through all of this process, and if you're not happy with the answer, you just keep swinging away at it. Well, they may. I mean, you may have a councillor and a seconder is going to say, we want to have a vote on stopping the LRT, and they may want to bring it before council. And uh, if I were the mayor, i say, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to rule you out of order. I'm going to certainly vote against it. And then they're going to say, okay, let's everybody vote. And uh, I assume when that vote is done and everybody stands around, we're still going to have a majority says, let's go for the LRT. And that should completely end it at that point. But I don't, I don't think it's necessary. I think even without having that vote, I think the momentum is all for the LRT. And, uh, you know, People can try to, you know, make a motion and try to have a vote on it, but I think I think the trains left the station. What's the sense of having a vote if we don't seem to accept the results? I mean, we've voted and voted and voted mm-hmm. in some way or another on this. Yeah. And you know, yeah. You know, one at one point, the big stickler was, well, only if we get full funding. Well, you got that too. Yeah. So, like. Why do you why do you have another vote that overrules the one that you just had? And what makes the next one any more credible than the last? Why are you going to believe that one if you don't believe the one you just had? Well, the only problem here is the government has put sort of a doubt in it, and it says we want to make sure that the council, this is where they want to go, and they, they essentially want to know where the new council is going. Does it agree with the old council? Uh, so that 
you know, they that that's what they said. Pretty mu- that's the message they pretty much delivered when they stopped uh, spending money on the LRT after they came to power. We want to see the outcome of the election, what, where the new council wants to go that way. So that's what they're, you know, that that's the message they sent out. But I mean, if you're the gov- fed- provincial government, I think you could basically look at the election and say, you know, we know where council wants to go. And unless somebody, you know, a a majority come up and say, stop, we don't want to do this. We're just going to go ahead because otherwise it makes no sense to, to, you know, keep delaying things. Imagine if Hamilton was voting on Brexit. Oh, see, there's a mess. (laughs) I mean, there, there is an incredible mess. I mean, and that is a, I mean, some people have said, and I think quite rightly, Brexit vote was the biggest mistake that the United Kingdom has done in the last yeah. 100 years. Mm-hmm. We know right now uh, the economic consequences are going to be dire. The political consequences with Northern Ireland are absolutely I know. incredible. I know. And the uh, we know if you go to the people today, and if you the polls have been very clear, a majority would vote to stay with the European yeah. Union, and you only have about a third of the population. Because a lot of people were just, you know, peaked and angry, and they said, oh, I want to get out, without even thinking of the consequences. Now when the consequences are rolling out, yeah. I mean, the economic ones, these are going to be big, big economic losses for, for, for the United Kingdom. So let me ask you this, as we bring it back here. Is this, what? where does this leave MPP Donna Skelly and Doug Ford in the sense that this was or could have been an out, an off-ramp for their government having to spend this billion dollars and instead could filter it out on various projects that were probably already going to be paid for with other budgets anyway. Where does it leave them? Well, I, I think basically, the uh, if I were advising the Premier and Don Skelly, I'd say basically uh, that uh, I would just keep quiet and let this be handled by the Minister of Transport, because he's a steady hand. John Yakubuski, he, I'm sure he, he knows how to do the job. He's been in the legislature for 15 years, comes from a political family. His father was a cabinet minister. His cousin was a cabinet minister. He knows how to how to really make things work properly. Leave it leave it to Yakubuski, the transport minister, to work it all out. He and the Premier and Donna should stay out of this. Let me just put a footnote in. Today is Donna Skelly's birthday, and I want to say on the radio, CHML, happy birthday, Donna. There you go. Wow, very and cool. I, and I hope, uh, so anyway, so anyways, I think the best thing is for Donna and the Premier say, let's let the transport minister hap, hap, uh, deal with it, and uh, let uh, the Premier celebrate his nephew's win in Etobicoke North and the Toronto City Council, and let Donna celebrate her birthday, and let the Minister of Transport worry about the LRT uh, together with the mayor. Very delicately put, Henry, I must say. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's how I would tie everything up. With the a, a, like there. a true political science professor as opposed to candidate. Um, they can learn something from you, Henry. Well, I mean, there's a time to be quiet <laughs> and there's a time to be uh, not quiet. And uh, I mean, certainly, I mean, politicians get in a lot of trouble if they talk too much. And uh, sometimes they overtalk. We saw it with Tim Hudak. Uh, Tim's a good friend of mine, but he just talked. He always had to talk about everything, and he just got himself into trouble. So I just think, I think for both Donna and the Premier, uh, I think the votes are in yesterday. I think they just should stay out of it at this point. All right. What about here with councillors that obviously voted for this and then flip-flopped and, and put their support behind Vito's Grow? Where does that leave them? Well, they have to reconsider their point of view, and they have to say, listen, I backed a losing horse in the race. Uh, i got to cut my losses. 
and they have to go and say to the mayor, said, okay, you won, I'm going to cooperate with you. That's the sensible thing to do, and quite frankly, I think that's what they're going to do. Any sensible counselor knows he's not going to be able to get things done for his ward uh, if unless, unless he basically makes peace with the mayor because, you know, there's a, money's always tight, and if, you know, if you're a trouble, if you're a, a burr under the saddle of the mayor and the council, you're not going to have money coming your way. And if you're, say, someone like Brad Clark, who I respect a lot, uh, you know, he has a need. He's got all sorts of roads there, uh, new roads uh, roads in the uh, ward with no sidewalks. He needs sidewalks, so he needs to go to the mayor. Okay, I'm on your side now. Can we build some sidewalks in Stony Creek or in my constituency where the people need them? And get on with, the, you know, meeting the needs of the people and forget what happened uh, during the campaign. And I think uh, Fred's, Fred's not going to hold any grudges. He's not that kind of person. So it's it's relatively easy for him to... Uh, make up with the counselors if a counselor wants to make up with him. Uh, Many today are still holding firm to their anti-LRT position, counting votes, doing this, saying that it still depends on counsel. Do you think that this is going to go through? Do you think this the LRT will be stopped? Do you think it's going to go through? Is this it? I I have to think after yesterday's vote, the train has left the station. I mean, there may be a vote on council. I can't believe the vote on council is going to be negative on the LRT. Not after what we've seen, not only the victory of the mayor, but also we got a mountain counselor, a new mountain counselor who won, uh, who was straightforward, said, I'm all in favor of it. And, of course, many people said, well, no mountain counselor could be in favor of this. And we get a new mountain counselor who wins up there being flat out for the LRT. You look at uh, Dundas, a lot of people thought, well, Dundas, uh, the people in Dundas aren't, don't like the LRT, and uh, a lot of them complained about it. And so they bas- the person who ran against the LRT in Dundas, uh, John Migatitian, a very good politician, very good backroom boy like uh, Vito Scro, uh, he came in third. He was way, way, way behind. So it's not only what the mayor did, it's also where you see some of these other races where, in fact, you could see that, you know, stopping the LRT is just not what the people want, whether it's in the mountain, whether it's in Dundas. Uh, it, it just, it's not the story. Plus, Henry, you have to think, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly just sick of talking about this. Why, like, is this finally going to go to bed? Are we going to stop talking about it and move on? I think, I think the city's become fatigued. Well, it, it, it's becoming fatigued, and uh, I think uh, if if if, this, if the council tried to ha- ha- uh, you know stop it, I think there'd be an outcry for you know for the for the people who are the movers and shakers of the city. I mean, just look at all the groups that are behind it. You've got the Ontario- Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You've got all the realtor, all the business groups are in favor of it. You got all the unions in favor of it. You got all the people who run our hospitals and the healthcare system. You got all the people who run our educational places, whether it's Mohawk College, McMaster University, the school boards. I mean, everybody who's got a stake in running things in this city has said, "Man, this is a no-brainer. This is we got to get on with this." And if they try to, we got investors who've said, "Hey, you know, we've bought a lot of land here in Hamilton. We're not going to build things if you don't have the LRT." I mean, uh, all along that corridor, we're going to have businesses moving in. And what people have to realize, businesses pay high taxes, and they pay more taxes than they get benefits from the city. And then essentially that's going to hold down or slow the growth of property taxes. So, I mean, the arguments... 
are going ahead are just, you know, there are so many of them. Is this a turning point for Hamilton, Henry, in the sense that not only was uh, this a municipal election, but it also was a referendum on LRT? We remember what happened with stadiums and how long it took highways to get built. Uh, You know, usually one giant step forward was followed by two giant steps backwards. Is this it? Are we finally done with that? Have we turned that corner? I really think we have done it, and I think when people realize not only the, what the LRT is going to do, but the, all that infrastructure is going to be fixed along that way, and we're going to get a, a, a modern telecommunication system on, in that street when we do all the infrastructure. Businesses want to be able to tie into a modern telecommunication structure. We've been losing businesses to Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge because we don't have a, a state-of-the-art telecommunication system along our main east-west axis in, uh, in, this, in this city. We build the LRT, we're going to have that great telecommunication system, and, and, and businesses are going to want to come here. They want to come here rather than Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge because we're clo- closer to Toronto. The transportation is much better. But if we don't have a modern telecommunication system along that King and Main Street route, they're going to continue to go over to Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge, and they're getting lots and lots of new business there simply because they built uh, an LRT. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, another one down. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Love talking to you. Very good, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joining us in uh, in studio, Fred Eisenberger, mayor of the city of Hamilton. Congratulations! Thank you very much, Scott. What uh, what a what a spectacular evening, and uh, it's just a delightful day. I, I hear a lot of happiness out there. That first of all, the election's over, which I think is uh, is probably a relief for everybody. And uh, secondly, we get to clean up all the the signs that are out there <laughs> littering the place. And thirdly, uh, you know, a pretty strong mandate, uh, you know, going forward. So uh, you know, seventy five thousand votes is uh, pretty unusual. But it's a pretty clear indicator of where the community at large is on not only LRT, but economic development and, uh, you know, affordable housing and poverty, all areas that need attention. So I'm pretty thrilled with the uh, the mandate we got last night. I feel like I just got off a roller coaster. Yeah. Well, <laughs> campaigns are like that. You know what? And I've said right from the very beginning, LRT is going to be a roller coaster. I don't think the roller coaster is quite done yet, yeah. but I think we're, uh, we're close to the end. And uh, hopefully uh, members of council that have been sitting on the fence or, uh, you know, saying not necessarily now understand that this is now the will of the people. Uh, we're, we, you know, it used to be that uh, a referendum, you, you know, we kept the country together 50 plus one. Yeah. This is yeah. much bigger than 50 plus one. And uh, I think the people have spoken and they need to listen. All right. So LRT, what happens now? Is it a done deal? Does this mean, like, the, as you mentioned, this was the referendum vote. So what happens? Well, the, uh, there's two, two ways that this can go. Uh, we can have an affirmation vote and, uh, you know, get, get, get folks rallied around this and say, for this term of council, we are full bore on for LRT and have that vote and hopefully have a majority vote on that. The other is the, uh, the operating agreement uh, still has to be finalized. So either one of those are triggers that uh, will keep us moving forward. Uh, it, you know, it, 
The previous council, we had a two-thirds majority requirement uh, to undo the decision that the previous council had made, and, and by majority. So ironically, at the beginning of the term, when we had the announcement that said we're on for LRT, council had virtually affirmed that they were on for moving forward on this. Uh, today, it's a simple majority because it's a new council. The, uh, you don't need a two-thirds majority. Right. You need a simple majority. Uh, I, I believe at the end of the day, the simple majority is there, and uh, and then we're going to move forward on this. Ontario uh, stopped, or, or uh, and I don't want to be in- inaccurate in what I'm saying here, but, but, but put things on pause while this was all going on. Has that started again yet? Or is the train moving? No, and, and, and so the train is moving. Uh, the project keeps moving forward. Uh, the, the province put a freeze on all land acquisitions uh, mm-hmm. in, in the province of Ontario. So this was not focused on the right. city of Hamilton. We got caught up in it, obviously. I expect that that, uh, that will be released in due time and uh, they can finish off the, the land acquisition that's already $130 million in, including design and, and land acquisition. And, uh, and the RFP is still out there in terms of the tendering process, so it's happening. Uh, and the you know, design work is continuing. So the, the Metrolinx office and the joint city Metrolinx office at Hunter Street is operating. Uh, they're moving forward at full tilt. Uh, the moment the release of the uh, the freeze on the land acquisition happens, they'll continue to finalize that, and uh, we'll continue to move forward. So, what's the new timeline, or what's what happens next for council? You'll all get together. Will it be a first order of business to reaffirm all of this? Well, listen, I have to have some conversations with uh, members of council. I, I suspect that uh, those that have been on the fence uh, understand the will of the people today, and so I, I expect that they'll be. Uh, uh, you know, inclined to uh, move forward on this and uh, have an affirmative vote. I don't want to trigger a vote until we know the votes are there. Uh, someone else might do that, but, you know, that'll happen after December the 1st. So I think uh, anyone that's prepared to put on the table, let's kill LRT at this point, given the mandate that we were given last night, I think would be uh, held in, uh, you know, very low regard at this point. And I'm, I'm pretty sure no one's really quite prepared to go there, uh, but we'll see. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, there was quite a, uh, a, a mobilizing effort to kill this thing, including some councillors that flip-flopped mm-hmm. and, and supported your opponent. How do you bring all that back together? Uh, look, and as I said before, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. Uh, I've got a wonderful <laughs> dog. His name is Dash. Uh, you know, we're, we're not here to make friends. I, I'm, I'm a friendly guy. I want to be uh, cordial and friendly with everybody, and I have been, uh, you know, through my entire political career. Uh, I'll continue to do that, and uh, I'm going to appeal to people to look after the interests of our city. That's our job. That's what we're elected to do. Uh, but, and it's not just about my parochial interest in Ward 7 or 9 or 10 or 12. It's also the, the, the global interest of the entire city of Hamilton. So I'm going to appeal to people to uh, come to the table with uh, a broad, uh, broad view and uh, certainly respecting the mandate that the mayor has been given. And I'm the only one that gets that broad mandate right across the city. I'm pretty sure that uh, in in some of the anti-LRT council member wards, I got more votes than they did. Mm. And so a pretty strong indicator that uh, that, uh, even in those areas, they're uh, they're not working with the majority here. I, I, I think we are. Are you surprised that, well, no, you're not, because we talked about this being an, an LRT election. That being said, because it seemed to be, and it was so front and center, that everything else kind of got shoved to the side. How do we deal with that? Because there were still some pretty important issues that really didn't get debated here. Well, it didn't get debated because, uh, you know, there's a kind of a one-note issue. We raised them consistently all the way through, and we'll continue to do that. I think uh, people... 
understood that Hamilton is more than a, a than a transit line or more than transit. It's uh, it's about affordable housing. It's about poverty. It's about bringing in new jobs. All of those are issues that I continue to focus on as a broader vision, and uh, that broader vision appealed to you know most of the previous uh, leaders that, uh, that uh, you know, served in the city of Hamilton from MPs to MPPs, the former mayors to, you know, all the major institutions and organizations that understand the value of not only uh, having an LRT and all the, all the good things that it brings, but all the other issues that we face that uh, are going to require our attention. So I, uh, I'm going to stick with that broad mandate. Um, you know, I, I don't think this was just about LRT, but for those that made it, an LRT only issue, uh, you can consider this the referendum. This is this is a pretty deci- decisive, yeah. uh, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know the percentage what numbers, but it's d- not, what else can you do? It's not a fifty <laughs> plus one kind of. Yeah. Here's how you hold a country together. Uh, yeah. This was much more significant than that, and uh, a pretty clear indicator of where people are in this community. Obviously, you're out on the streets during a campaign and talking to people, and I'm sure they they won't think twice about filling your ear with stuff that mm-hmm. that is a concern of them. Uh, did you notice that people? We're we're a bit more open minded about LRT this time. That they were willing to listen to you, and that they were actually changing their mind. Could you feel that swaying? I don't know that there was a change. You know, the the polling that was done by Metrolinks, uh, you know, you know, about a half a year ago indicated that sixty percent of the population was uh, generally in favor of LRT, mm-hmm. and that's borne out to be true. And so I'm not. I was not surprised. I, what I was surprised by how, is how little the LRT issue actually resonated with people in the mm-hmm. broader community. When we're out in Ancaster or at the Dundas. Uh, Dundas uh, Peach or Cactus Festival or, uh, you know, the uh, Festival of Friends or the Peach Festival, it it was not the most significant issue that people talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also did some polling on, you know, people, uh, you know, giving us us an understanding of what they thought was most important. And LRT was not at the top of the list. It was taxes. It was affordable housing. It was poverty before LRT. So I think there was some LRT fatigue here, and yeah. I think people have had enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we've debated this thing for 10 years now. Let's get on with this. Uh, do you think that, and we've talked uh, for, for, for many years about turning the corner and the renaissance and what have you, uh, and it always appeared that we would take a giant step forward, but unfortunately it may be followed by one or two steps backward. O- over and above the mayor's race, the LRT, do you think this election shows a change in attitude for Hamilton? Yes. Uh, that, you know, it, 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 we've done it, we voted on this, and we're going to move forward. Yeah, I think so. And I think people appreciate where we are in Hamilton today. And, you know, we're, we're in a really good place. Yeah. Uh, we, we see, you know, cranes in the sky that we've been pining to get for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, we see developments happening on the waterfront. We see park improvements uh, right across the board. You know, one of the, uh, the councillors that uh, went to the other side made a claim that we've been ignoring water down. Uh, well, as it turns out, we've invested some $175 million in the water down Flamborough area over the last 10 years. No area of this city has been ignored. And I think that was the folly of the message that they were trying to get out there that didn't ring true to people. We, yeah. we, we've had a balanced approach throughout the city, and I think people came to understand that, and they appreciate that we are in a much better place today than we were four, five, six years ago. So we're, we've made some great progress. People feel the renaissance. They, uh, they feel the good vibe. They, they, they like the cultural vibe that's happening mm-hmm. in Hamilton. We're attracting new people. Uh, there's a dynamic 
downtown in, in in all of our downtowns, whether it's Waterdown or Stony Creek or Hamilton or or you know any of the other uh, Ancaster, they're all flourishing. Yeah, and so people people understand that we're we're in a good place. So I think they they finally said, look. Let's keep going. Let's keep building on this. How much do you anticipate uh, debating the whole operating costs and, and all of that sort of thing? How 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 difficult is that going to be moving it forward? It shouldn't be difficult at all. We already have pretty firm estimates on what the approximate number is going to be, and mm-hmm. we also have pretty firm estimates on the additional tax revenues that we're going to generate. It's a, it's a lower operating cost for the LRT than it is for the bus network. So it, for all intents and purposes, it's an offset. And so this is not going to skyrocket taxes and not going to increase taxes at all. It's going to generate more tax revenue. Uh, and uh, that, that tax revenue, not unlike the expressway, and I think I've explained this to you before, when uh, when we debated the expressway endlessly, uh, the, the argument was it's not going to generate any more tax revenue. It's just going to be a cash cow. It's money down the drain. Uh, none of that happened to be true. Of course, it's been a blessing from a traffic perspective. Can't imagine our world without it. Uh, but it costs us $7 million, $7 million a year to operate and maintain the expressway, and it generates $15 million a year more in new tax revenue as a result of the development that's happened around it, and, and it's growing. That's exactly the same scenario for LRT. Uh, no different. Uh, so this whole notion that uh, we're going to get fleeced with new taxes or cost overruns, uh, this is a Metrolinx project. Uh, any cost overruns, if they exist at all, is going to be their cost overruns, not ours. Uh, the city of Hamilton is uh, going to be kept whole, and we're going to generate more tax revenue as a result. So what is the biggest challenge for you moving forward, getting the LRT done? Uh, just getting uh, you know, a final kind of confirmation from council. I think that'll be, the, uh, that'll be the end of it. So this council is now the determining factor. Uh, we need them on board. I, I think people need to uh, relay to their uh, councillors that they want this project to move forward. And uh, let's get on board and let's get going. Uh, always concerned about governments not having enough money to pay for things like this. Are you worried that once they look at the books, there won't be enough money there, that we'll have to pay some of this? Uh, is this costing the province a lot now, or does it come out gradually over a period of time? This is yeah, exactly that. So it's this is a design, build, finance, operate, and maintain over 30 years. Uh, so this is a finance project. This is not a, a you know a billion dollars up front. Uh, that's always Which been the case. Which is odd because it's not like there's a billion dollars exactly. sitting there. Exactly. And, you know, and they've confirmed that, you know, this notion that there's a billion dollars sitting around that we can just pass over to the city and you go and do, you know, do other work is, is ridiculous. It's it's borrowed money. Uh, it is going to be uh, financed, and I think that's the uh, the appropriate way to go. There's, a, there's an accounting uh, benefit in terms of financing that way because you can also depreciate the, mm-hmm. uh, the asset, and mm-hmm. the province is going to own the asset, and even though we're going to be operating it by and large, they're going to own it. They get to depreciate it. So there's a good financial sound uh, business case to be had there in terms of doing it that way. And um, I, I'm, I'm going to hold the province to their promise that uh, they were, they're going to adhere to what, what this council decides to do going forward. They've made that promise and assurance on, on a number of occasions. Uh, MP Skelly just said that on the town hall the other day. Uh, the Minister of Transport said that, and the Premier has confirmed that. So I'm going to hold them to account on that. Have they changed their minds on a couple of issues that uh, you know, they have? Uh, I think this would be a disaster for them should they, uh, should they vary from what they've promised to do. So what do we do next? What what's the next big thing that's going to divide this city? No, it seems we've solved the problem now, man. We don't need any more division. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to promise that I'm not bringing forward any major issues. We've got enough on our plate. 
Uh, if we can deliver this and the waterfront development and the you know, expanded transit plan, uh, we've got we've got plenty to do. And uh, I'm not I'm not itching to create another stadium debate or an LRT debate. <laughs> what else do we need? Oh, arena. What about an arena? No, thank you. No, thank you. I think we're good. Although there'll be some work on on uh, you know uh, repurposing the arena and the the uh, convention center. Uh, there's some work already happening in that regard, and that's just normal you know cut and thrust of what we need to do to continue to grow our city but i'm not i'm not putting on the table any major project that is going to cause this kind of division we we've got enough to do and if we manage to do this we'll we'll have pushed the city ahead miles we'll have a love train on our hands <laughs> I, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on what's happened around us especially specifically in burlington a lot of changes there yeah i was uh i mean i'm not surprised but i you know i, I i'd have to say rick uh, golding was a great mayor I, I i got along with rick just great he was a decent uh, honest and uh, hard-working uh, working mayor i was surprised by the whole watered-down, uh, you know, fiasco that hopefully is uh, not going to be raised anymore. And uh, uh, Mead Ward is uh, is a wonderful person. I know her, and uh, she'll do a fine job for uh, for Burlington. But you know, it did it did surprise me that Rick uh, did the watered-down thing, and I think it hurt him, unfortunately. Yeah. And and you know, I, I thought it would have been wise of him to stick to his commitment on the downtown development. I mean, you approved it. You know, why, why walk away from it and trying mm-hmm. to deflect that blame to somebody else? You should have owned it. He may very well have done much better if he'd just said, this is what I believe and uh, this is what I'm going to continue to do. But uh, he didn't. And, uh, you know, the voters made a different choice. Um, he's a good guy. Uh, you know, I, I like Rick a lot. We we formed a great partnership on climate change uh, that's going to be housed at the uh, the Net Zero building at Mohawk. And uh, there's a lot more work that we can do collaboratively with Burlington. Uh, you know, we're, there's lots of similarities and a lot of crossover how transit. The, how much do the two mayors work together? How much do they talk? Uh, we talk a, we talk a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, we you know we talk not only these two mayors. I mean, we get together with big city mayors across the country. Right. There's uh, there's AMO and there's uh, you know the regional mayors that get together. I mean, there's a lot of conversations of, around how mm-hmm. what kind of common issues do we face and how do we how do we deal them in partnership with against the province or with the province and with the federal government so there's a lot of conversation that's going on glad to see that uh, that John Toro Toro, Toro is going back although Jennifer Keysmat is a uh, very very uh, you know well regarded and strategic good planner uh, did a terrific job during her planning days there and I know that she's, she's going to probably go back to her affordable housing plan that she's been working on I think that's a very very positive initiative as well that uh, we need people good people like her to kind of work on and then Jim Watson in uh, in Ottawa has done a terrific job is now yeah, on their three. third LRT line uh, which uh, you know ought to, ought to impress people a little bit uh, mm-hmm. And they've and they've made local city in, uh, investments in these lines. This is not all 100 yeah. percent funding. We're the only ones that are fortunate enough to have that. They've they've made some very strategic investments and uh, they've done well. So I've, I've you know there's been some change in the whole region, but uh, by and large we've got uh, a lot of good people that are going to do great work. When you go back day one to a new city council, what's the feel? Because there's been enough change to change the com- the complexion of city council. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I think uh, you know there's four new people. Uh, you know all of them have their uh, their their talents and their passions, and uh, some of them are are you know seasoned and well you know they've been a, been experienced. Uh, Maureen Wilson, I'm thinking of, and she's been around uh, certainly an advocate for many many years, and certainly can bring her talents to bear. 
uh, all of them. J.P. Uh, Danko, uh, an engineer that uh, has uh, has a lot of smarts and a lot of energy and a lot of good ideas. Uh, they and all L- bring and an LRT supporter on and the an LRT supporter and on the mountain. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, which can, kind of is a key indicator that this whole notion that people you know they, they don't they don't support yeah. this was uh, a bit of a fallacy. Uh, all of them. Uh, Narinder, uh, you know, great, uh, great, talented person as well. A great track record in in business and in other places. Uh, brings a lot of enthusiasm and energy. Uh, also, a visible minority that uh, I think will will speak to you know those issues uh, as Matthew Green did in the past. Uh, who am I missing? Brad's back. And Brad Clark, yes, and Brad's back. And uh, you know, Brad has done his. Uh, on again, off again, on again, LRT thing. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, he can find a way of getting on again, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll move forward together. Going to be a fascinating time. And, uh, again, congratulations Thank to you. you. Uh, great race. Fred uh, Eisenberg has been with us, mayor for the city of Hamilton, newly elected last night. Thank you so much. Good luck moving forward, Fred. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Should Canada scrap the arms deal with Saudi Arabia, the Prime Minister says that they're prepared to freeze it if it includes weapons have been misused. We've got a clip here, and this is from Alberta Premier Rachel Notley. She said Ottawa should stop the import of oil from countries that aren't interested in human rights. We should not be importing oil from you know, a range of countries that are uninterested in human rights, uninterested in combating climate change, any of those things. And this, once again, underlies the absolute ridiculousness of the situation. All right, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Surprised to hear this from Rachel Notley, or is she just trying to get a pipeline built? She didn't say, why don't we all get off oil? And let the Middle East sink into uh, <laughs> the obscurity that it deserves if it can't diversify and modernize. Which is, by the way, what uh, the young prince said he was going to do. He just didn't say anything about political updating. So, uh, yes, as long as we stay on oil, we are going to be dependent on regimes around the world that may not meet our standards. This is an old story. Nothing new about this. The, the deal, the, the, the unstated relationship between, I guess, the world, I was going to say the West, and the Middle East has been, after the end of the, after the, end of the First World War and the, you know, the Ottoman Empire got carved up by the Western imperial powers for their own uses, and oil was a big factor. The states really were not, in any sense, natural outgrowths of, of what was there, sociologically or politically, so they could only be held together by force. And the deal was, well, you can do what you want at home, and, uh, you know, we'll buy your oil. Uh, that deal now is being called into question. That being said, Elliot, we've certainly heard in the last few years, the last five or so years, how we've become less dependent on oil from those parts of the world with technology and fracking and such. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that uh, the OPEC countries were trying to flood the market to drive the prices back down. What, how does that fit into this discussion? Well, clearly there has been a change in the supply of energy uh, because of new technologies. However, that doesn't diminish the fact that somebody's going to buy that oil, even if Canada chooses not to, because we mm. can, you know, we can do something more on our own. And we've got LNG and so forth in the U.S. can say we're not dependent. But, you know, all of our allies still are. So this is, um, not a, this is not a change in the global picture. 
uh, just a change in the situation of some states, uh, the ones that we may care about the most. But as long as the world is dependent on that kind of energy, then states like Saudi Arabia will remain important, and they will sell their oil. Does this help get a pipeline built? You talked about getting off energy. Obviously, until we do that, um, we still need a supply. Will this heighten the need for the Prime Minister to get the Trans Mountain built and, and just get our own resources to market as opposed to relying on everybody else's? Now we're talking about domestic Canadian politics uh, rather than geopolitics. But clearly, H- Hang on, Elliot, because we'll go back in a minute. Yep. <laughs> Fine. Uh, the Prime Minister has been making statements such as, we're going to buy out a, a pipeline company. You and I now own a pipeline company mm-hmm. in an effort, in fact, to get to, to Tidewater. That's still not going well. So the domestic situation in terms of a landlocked, couple actually, landlocked provinces that have the supply and the difficulty of getting it out uh, does remain. It's going to be a domestic issue for a time. We have two NDP governments in the West arguing with each other, uh, which is a remarkable phenomenon. Um, what is the relationship with Canada and Saudi Arabia now? Uh, Canada is prepared to freeze Saudi arms sales. What is the relationship now? Is this a far reach for them? For, for the Canadian government? For the Canadian government, on our side of things. Well, of course, we were already uh, with, in great difficulty with the Saudi regime and the mm-hmm. Saudi government prior to this in crisis because, as we all remember, uh, a tweet from our foreign minister got then translated into Arabic and circulated inside Saudi Arabia, and that was apparently enough to trigger uh, an over-the-top reaction, a threat uh, reaction, and uh, as we know, our ambassador was recalled, and flights are canceled, and students are called home, etc. So we were not in great shape uh, bilaterally in any event. The the uh, arms deal was going to go ahead because the government found uh, the government of this day found that the previous government had signed it. But this is really a way of saying we need the money that Saudi Arabia has accumulated mm-hmm. because it creates jobs in Canada. Uh, the American president has been saying the same thing, of course. Uh, that we need those. and so. But what that means is that the Saudi Arabia that we've been dealing with and we were willing to continue to deal with now has put itself in jeopardy, not only with Canada, but with uh, all of its major partners. The uh, Today, just as we're speaking, there's, well, there's a night-day difference, but um, as you know, there's a big investment conference going right. on where the young crown prince was going to really stake his future. He was going to change the country. He was going to modernize the country, and he wanted foreign investors involved. And he was taking actions that I think everybody would applaud. But now that uh, that uh, very large conference has been damaged badly, there's still 3,000 people there. And so really the attitude coming out of that conference you could take as kind of a you know, a bumper sticker for the entire thing. We hope everything would go quiet down and go back to normal so we can go back to normal. But the egregiousness uh, of, of this, you know, this monstrous act that they've been caught in, mm-hmm. uh, 
really has now changed the situation. And you're, of course, talking about the Washington Post journalist. I am. Uh, that being said, how does Saudi Arabia move forward on this? I mean, uh, it, it, it seems, obviously, they're caught red-handed. And I've asked other experts this. If, if, if this is what Saudi Arabia wanted, they certainly... Uh, did it in the most uh, visible way possible. Yes. Uh, now the world is watching. How do they position this, especially after two weeks of denying it, and then you know saying it's an accident, it's this, right. that, or the other, or, right. or or what have you, or what have you? How does the rest of the world? They all have to make the same decisions that we do regarding yes, Saudi Arabia. The, there was a bit of a holding fire for a little while. There was a, a time period where everybody was waiting to say, "Will this blow over, or will it blow up?" And, in fact, it has not blown over. The crisis has deepened. So we are in a situation where I would summarize it this way. Uh, what we're seeing, first and foremost, is a tragedy for the journalists involved. We shouldn't remember, you know, yeah. when we start talking about what's it all mean, what it means now is a, a, a man, a father, has been murdered mm. in, in a foul way. And in a, brutally. Brutally, mm. and, and we now have the details, which is interesting. Why do we have those details? It's the Turks. What's, what, why are the Turks doing this? But the main messages to come out of this, I think, is that this is now very bad news for Saudi Arabia at home. That is, the reform efforts that were going on are very, now, very much now going to be called into question. This was, you know, it's a solid state, uh, a very stable state, but it was also a very fragile state. So the the forward momentum domestically may now well be called into question. Again, it was not ever a political forward movement, but in terms of diversifying the economy and modernizing the modernizing the, the role of the, you know, culture and, and, very importantly, diversifying off oil. And, by the way, and, and not insignificantly but not talked about nearly enough, he was also taking on a different aspect toward Islam. Saudi Arabia's prominence comes from oil, but also because they are the keepers of the of the main uh, holy sites for Islam. And he he took on the Wahhabis at home and said, "We want a more, we want to go back to the original." He said, "We're not going to reform Islam. We're going back to the original Islam, which isn't what we see today, which is, uh, you know, a negative form." So, all of that now I think is being called into question. He may well be on his way out in order the monarchy to preserve the monarchy itself mm. may have to have to uh, replace him so he may take a fall for this yes and even if he doesn't he may have to curb he's he's basically at home taken on just about all the normal bastions of the how the how Saudi Arabia works consensus quiet and so forth so we we now have to say that uh, that's probably so at home uh, this is bad news for Saudi Arabia. If if Saudi Arabia is unstable, if Saudi Arabia now not, it has to be preoccupied, it's bad news regionally because the West, in particular the U.S., but all of us in a sense, have relied on Saudi Arabia to play a stabilizing role in the region and uh, particularly for, for the American presidency, this current government, and the previous, not so much the previous one, but the ones before, have all said, well, Saudi Arabia is going to be the the forefront of our efforts to curb not only radical Islam, which is one side of it, terrorism and so forth, but also Iran. So abroad, not just at home, what we're seeing is bad news uh, for for the regional dynamics. The regional dynamics, which were volatile anyway, hmm. Scott, they are getting more hmm. volatile. 
Let me ask you this, Elliot. If you know, it, it, you can understand. Uh, we can't justify, but certainly understand why Saudi Arabia was upset. Uh, with the journalist Jam- uh, Jamal Khashoggi, because of course he was not complimentary to Saudi Arabia. So if they want to take him out, why would they do it this way? Why would they do it at an embassy that's surrounded with closed circuit uh, television? Why why would they incriminate themselves this way? Um, they thought they could get away with it. Uh, I was just saying, you know, this is bad news really for Saudi Arabia, but also for the regional dynamics. There may be some good news out of this tragedy and out of the miasma we're now in. The good news might be that the the culture of impunity, which lets not only leadership such as we see in Saudi Arabia, but all around the world, the culture of impunity where leaders think they can get away with literally with murder, that may at least be challenged. It's possibly even mm. being uh, a bit of a crack in that culture of impunity. And if that is... If that is a result of what we're seeing in front of us, at least there's there's some good news. That's a good point. Uh, getting back to uh, freezing Saudi arms from other countries, obviously Canada's talking about this. I think Germany's also echoing in yeah, on this. What about Donald Trump? Well, what he has said is they want to invest $140 billion and create jobs. Who are we to turn down job creation? And Canada basically has said the same thing, although not <clears throat> in the same style. Uh, he has his own distinctive style uh-huh. of expression. And it's not, it isn't just arms in this case, two incidences or three incidences, but it's the whole broader role of Saudi Arabia using its economic weight and also as an oil balancer that makes you know, those 3,000 people still in Davos in the desert today saying, too bad about this uh, journalist, but we, we've got work to do, we've got business. So this is not going to be an easy situation if we do indeed follow through with that i think what canadian values would demand do not sell to a regime like this which uses those weapons against their own population and we have photos of that videos of that the the kind of armaments we're selling them um are we going to say from now on we are going to be so principled we're not going to sell to other countries that also have unsavory reputations it's a very worthy debate to have. I know where we would like to come down on this, but if the answer is, okay, are you willing to put up with the unemployment uh, for your high moral standards, mm. uh, uh, Scott or, or Professor Tepper or whoever, uh, what are you going to tell the people who are working as a result? So, in other words, uh, this is all politics, posturing at this point, and at the end of the day, it'll be business as usual. I think... That was the name of the game for the original couple of weeks. Let's hope that it blows over instead of blows up. It blew up. Turkey has, Turkey has seen to it that this is, does not disappear as a subject, so we're all caught up in it now. And where will it go from here? Are, is, is there just a huge urge? I'll put it differently. Are we at an inflection point in world politics? Is there a huge urge just to find a way to get beyond this? Okay, they'll, they'll come up with some kind of an excuse and everybody will say, that's good enough, except everybody's saying that's nonsense. So that, that excuses. But are we going to f- try to find a way to go back to status quo ante and just, you know, won't it be great to, to get past this? Or is this now an inflection point where murder uh, by, by tyrants and the culture of impunity, but also uh, more broadly uh, the 
the role of values in world politics and economics going to come more to the fore. You talked about the scary direction the world was heading. You know, you can think of the, the, the Russian poisonings uh, in the UK yes. and such, and, and, and you mentioned that the Saudis just thought they could get away with this. Why is this case resonating? Why didn't they get away with this one? Well, let's, let's veer off in another direction to answer that question. We all remember the case of little Alan Kurdi, who's the three-year-old child who washed up on the shores of trying to right. escape the region, and there was a Canadian connection there because Canadian family. Suddenly there was a face to what we knew was going on, but we didn't know quite how to react, so there was a crystallizing moment. So what we see in front of us uh, with the with the highness murder, uh, just a terrible murder of Kamal uh, Khashoggi, uh, a journalist, that is giving us a face, a particular... A particular uh, way of, of entering into what is otherwise just a miasma, an ongoing background. What about you know, what the Saudis have been doing in Yemen? Do you want to even take 30 seconds to think what's going on inside jails in Iran, in Syria, in Turkey perhaps, and certainly in Saudi Arabia? We have got to know certain details about a certain individual who was well-known in the West, who's got a major newspaper not willing to let it go, and Turkey willing for its own reasons, apparently, to champion this case. We have a face, we have a face now to terror. We have a face now to the culture of impunity. That, will, I think, is, is the difference. So will the world call out Saudi Arabia on that, or is it, don't do that again, uh, let's keep the deal going? I think there's going to be a mixture of that. There, I think Saudi Arabia is definitely diminished and tarnished as a result of this, no matter how they handle it domestically at home. In part, by the way, they're fumbling on their explanations. And uh, that, I think, will have longer-term consequences. So that's what I was saying earlier, that Saudi Arabia is diminished now. At home, there's this possibility of turmoil. Uh, In the region, their role is now going to be uh, more difficult, the, the role that others wanted them to play going to be more difficult for them to play, so the volatility of the region, and we don't need more volatility, all that's going to continue. How it ultimately ends up, we don't know. Uh, You talked about the world heading for a scary place there, and the one good thing out of this is that we've caught it and this is resonating with us. Do you feel the pendulum might be swinging back, or is that too optimistic? It's pushing against the grain. Uh, We have an American presidency that is not trying to champion human rights around the world, if I could be delicate about it, that uh, John Bolton right now is in Moscow, as we speak, saying we're pulling out of a nuclear containment treaty. Uh, So the world, in that sense, doesn't have a moral leader among the major superpowers or major powers. Russia is certainly not going to play that role. So, nor will China, for that matter. So, I think... The hope is that out of this terrible situation where we now actually have a, a face, we have details, we have facts, that there will be a pause and a, recon, a reconsideration by a lot of states, Canada first and foremost, because this is where we live, about what kind of world we want to live in and how we're going to achieve it. And if we don't use this case as an example, what do we use? Well, I think this case... Uh, Right now, today, we're talking about uh, there's a political leader of the opposition saying we should bring the Magnitsky Act into effect. And this was 
an act packed by, passed by four countries now, uh, Estonia being one of them, but the U.S., Britain, Canada, uh, have all passed this act saying we can sanction individuals. We can actually, we have new tools for dealing with human rights abusers. And we, we applied them. We, uh, dozens of individuals were sanctioned uh, not long ago, less than a year ago, mm. in, uh, in Russia and in uh, Venezuela and, and Sudan. So we, we, are, we are beginning to use tools we didn't have before, and this is an opportunity to increase the use of those tools to bring us to a world where there's rules, where there's, where there's some morality, and that's not back to a world of dog-eat-dog dog and everybody do anything they want, might makes right. The more we move in the direction of we gave up on that, we rejected that, and we've created uh, tools for dealing with that, the more this case can be used to get us back closer on the track where we have been going, that morality does count in the world, hmm. that it isn't, as former prime minister said, all about the mighty dollar, uh, that, uh, that, as I say, might be a good thing that comes out of this, this tragedy. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.